scale of one to 10, who here this morning feels seven or higher? Okay. On a scale of one to 10, who here this morning feels like a five or lower? A few of you. I would say I'm about a three this morning. Uh, If I come across a little bit flat, it's not you, it's me. I actually had a flu bug this weekend. I'm not not really prone to give up my teaching opportunities here at Church on the Rock. So I told Matt last night, I'm actually on the mend, I just kind of physically depleted. I told Matt last night, you should be ready, but also I'm totally going to be there. So here we are. I want to address, I want to have a couple of uh, quick sort of uh, family discussions on two topics before I jump into my teaching. Um, The first one is uh, I want to uh, just in brief at least reference the uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, this past week. Um, I actually, I, I intentionally decided to wait when the draft opinion was released. I just thought it, it seemed wise to wait until it was for real, you know, all the way done. Um, there's a couple things that I want to say uh, about that. Um, the first one is that in a room this size, uh, there are people here who have made the decision in the past to get an abortion. And I want you to know that God's grace is here for you. I've not always been comfortable with some of the language used in the debates uh, because some of the language uh, tends to uh, ostracize some in a way that's really unfortunate to me. Um, And the kingdom of God, the family of God, um, is big enough for all those who will turn to him and just say yes to him. And at whatever point that you make that decision to say yes to him, we're family, regardless of your past. The second thing I want to say is, uh, read you a verse real quickly. I don't think I put this on the screen, but Isaiah 117, it's, it's, it's the heart of God, and it's, it's actually an expression of the heart of God that is consistent throughout Scripture from, from start to finish. This is a value that's very dear to his heart. Isaiah 117, learn to do right and to seek justice, to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless, and to plead the case of the widow. It is, it is always, always has been, always will be, Uh, One of the primary callings of the church to stand in the gap uh, for those who are vulnerable. And this decision um, means potentially for us here in Alaska uh, an accelerated need to stand in the gap. In the state of Alaska, 
about, uh, this is from 2020 statistics, but about 11.5% of pregnancies were terminated uh, to the tune of about 1,200 pregnancies uh, annually. Um, of those 1,200 uh, terminated pregnancies, about 75% of them uh, are from either low-income or impoverished households. Uh, right now, and this is something that's dear to my heart, uh, right now, and actually at any given time, um, there are about 3,000 children in the state of Alaska in the foster care system. And um, as, as our prayers for the protection of the most vulnerable are answered, <clears throat> God has called us now to a new uh, level of standing in the gap for the most vulnerable, um, of stepping up and owning the opportunity and the privilege um, to care for young children who uh, may not have a home, uh, for mothers who are finding it difficult to survive. Um, but that's our calling. That's our privilege. This is where, this is where the church shines, right? As we selflessly uh, make sacrifices to stand up for those who are unable to stand up for themselves. The second thing I want to mention uh, I'm going on sabbatical. Did you guys know that? Some of you knew that. I want to tell you uh, what sabbatical is, but I want to tell you first two things that it's not really, because uh, I've been asked about this recently. Um, our uh, church leadership uh, grants me an extended time away every seven years, and Church on the Rock is 14 years old. Can you believe it? We're almost to our 14th birthday. And so I'm taking my second extended sabbatical. Um, I think that one of the things that uh, people assume is that it's, it's the drama that drives pastors into sabbatical, right? And let's be honest, the last couple of years, the drama has accelerated just a tad, right? Is that fair? Um, and I, I, I would say this, and I, I'm not sure if I've said this to you from this platform before, but I would say that most people's estimation of the level of drama that I am, like, personally receive through the last couple of years, most people's estimation of that is actually far above what has actually been the case for me. Um, my leaders here at Church on the Rock, our staff, our elders, our board, have just been so phenomenally gracious um, towards me. I'm so thankful for that. Now, some of the rest of you have been a problem, but... <laughs> no, there's certainly, there's certainly a fatigue, you know, that comes from that, but I would say that's like maybe 5% of, of why sabbatical is necessary. Uh, the second thing that I think is probably sort of most commonly attached to sabbatical is the trauma, and that is that when you do what I do, this is true for uh, anyone who is in a helping role full-time, pastors, counselors, when you do what I do, um, you're walking along with people in 
crisis and in, in trauma, and there's a secondhand experience of that, of that crisis and trauma, right? That definitely accumulates over time and, and accumulates in a way that um, can, can produce uh, a greater level of fatigue, sort of emotional fatigue in your life. And so, uh, but even that, I would say, that maybe is like 25% of the, of the reason. Uh, that's certainly uh, a real thing, and it's an important thing to address and to be mindful of. Um, but I tell people all the time, even given that, the drama and the trauma, I love what I do. I really, uh, I really consider it a joy. Um, the real, I, I think the biggest reason uh, for someone like myself to take a sabbatical is that um, there's actually a great danger um, for people who do what I do. And the danger is that we can confuse our public spiritual life with our private spiritual life because so much of our private walk with God is connected to our public role as a pastor, right? If you were to ask me to cleanly delineate the two, I would say, I, most of the time, I don't even really know how. So much of my ministry flows out of my own growth and relationship with Christ, right? But the danger is, is to, for someone in my position, is over time to to sacrifice the private life for sort of at the, uh, uh, for the public life, meaning that what you see me say from up here um, is, is actually more detached from what I'm experiencing privately in relationship with God. That's a danger for you. That's a danger for anyone. But it's particularly a danger for pastors. And a sabbatical is a great way to sort of find your feet again with Jesus, right? To, to be able to press into that relationship knowing that this Sunday uh, there's no consequence of that pressing in that I'm going to talk about publicly, right? That uh, it's a time for, for me just to dig in in my own walk with the Lord. Um, and, um, and to take a deep breath in that, right? Uh, there's, not, there's not like a pressure in that. There's not like a burden in that. Uh, it's a joy. It's a time to just be me as a person with God, uh, me as a person with my family. And so I would ask that you would pray for me, uh, pray for my family uh, over the next couple of months, pray for our team, uh, our leaders here at Church of the Rock. We were actually kind of on the fence about whether it made sense to do it this summer, and it was my team that said, let's do it, let's go for it, we got it. And so I'm so thankful for them. So see you in October. <clears throat> That's actually part of the reason I wanted to come this morning. This is my last time teaching for a little while. Uh, and so I wanted to be able to share it with you. So um, now that we got all that out of the way, uh, can I say another quick prayer? And then we're going to jump into the story. God, I am so grateful for your word. 
and for your uh, faithfulness in revealing your truth. I'm thankful that you so carefully led uh, people over history to write down your words, to write down your thoughts, to preserve them for us. And so I ask this morning as we look at your word uh, that you would give us insight, that you would open our hearts, open our ears to receive from you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, as I've done, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you a chunk of the story. It's essentially 1 Samuel 18 through 20. Uh, I am going to leave out some of the details of the story just for the sake of time, but you'll get a gist of the flow of the story. Um, this is a story uh, really about uh, God's calling. And so what I'm going to do is after we get through the story, I want to highlight three, what I, what I believe to be so critically important truths uh, about God's calling on our lives uh, as believers. So last week, uh, Matt talked, and David has had his, his, like, inauguration, basically, right? He's anointed king of Israel in a private ceremony, um, and then he heads down to the battlefront he takes on a giant, he slays the giant, and literally overnight, uh, David is a hero, right? David is living his best life. <clears throat> so here's the story. This is, I'm calling this uh, David's post best year ever sequence of events. David returns from uh, killing the giant, defeating the Philistines, and it says that David and Jonathan uh, became best friends right away. Uh, they were BFFs uh, from that point on. And the story goes on to say that Saul uh, decided to keep David around rather than send him back home. Remember, he was, he was just on an errand. He's a shepherd boy, and he was on an errand to drop off supplies for his brothers, ends up being the hero, winning the whole battle. And Saul, uh, probably much to David's brother's chagrin, said, hey, why don't you stay here and uh, serve me uh, here <clears throat> and help me lead my men. So Saul actually ends up putting David in charge of some of his fighting men. And every time that there was an attack and David led men out to fend off that attack, he was very successful uh, in his leadership. And then it goes on to say that the men really liked fighting with David because God kept giving him uh, the victory. So eventually, Saul puts David basically in charge of his army, and the, 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 the men, the fighting men, love him, and God continues to bless him. <clears throat> in 1 Samuel 18, 6, it says, Now it happened as they were coming, they were returning from the battle. When David returned from killing the Philistines, that the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with other musical instruments. And the woman sang as they played, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And then Saul became very angry, for this lyric displeased him. 
And he said, they've given David credit for 10,000s, but to me, they've given credit only for thousands. What more could he possibly have but my kingdom? And then it says that Saul eyed David with suspicion after that point. (laughs) That's a great song. It's easy to be a little bit judgmental of Saul at this point and say, ooh, kind of insecure, aren't you? But I mean, think about it. Like, you remember the last time that your spouse came home and was like, you know, so-and-so. They really know how to whatever, fill in the blank. It's actually not difficult to trigger our own sort of sense of like jealousy and insecurity, right? And the best way to do that is to compare you directly to someone else who's doing what you do, but doing it better, right? Saul does not like this. He eyes David with suspicion. In fact, it says that the next day after returning, David is there in Solomon's court, palace, whatever, home, and David is playing the harp, and Saul has some kind of uh, dark mood descend over him, and in his dark mood, he picks up a spear, and he tries to pin David to the wall. Verse 12 of chapter 18 says, now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, and the Lord had left Saul. So after that point, Saul says, okay, I still need you to be in charge of my army because you're successful, um, but I don't want you hanging around my house anymore. I don't want to have to look at you. And so David continues to lead the army, but does not, uh, it's not welcomed into the presence of Saul. It says that God blessed David at war and that all of the people of the nation of Israel grew in love for David. And Saul decided to entrap David. He thought, I will indebt David to myself in hopes of putting him in harm's way. And so he offered Merib, one of his daughters, to David, who basically sort of declined. And so Merib was given to someone else, but there was another one of Saul's daughters who was really into David. Her name was Michael. She really liked David. And Saul said, ooh, I could use this to my advantage. So he offers his daughter Michael to David and says, you could be the king's son. You could marry into the royal family. That's a pretty big deal. Are you interested in taking my daughter's hand in marriage? And David says, I can't afford to. I can't afford the price to take the king's daughter. And Saul says, I'll tell you what. Uh, if you can get a hundred Philistines for me and bring them, it's actually more graphic than that, but I'll leave that out. Uh, bring me a hundred Philistines, you can have the hand of my daughter and you can, you can skip the dowry price. And Saul's thinking, I've got to find a way to get David killed. And so David goes out, kills 200 Philistines and brings them back to Saul and marries the king's daughter. Chapter 18, verse 28, verse 29, when Saul saw and realized that the Lord was with David, 
that Michael, his daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. And so Saul was David's enemy continually. It's not going well. What happens next is Saul goes to his son Jonathan and his servants, and he says, okay, enough beating around the bush. I want David dead, and I need you guys to take care of it. Story tells us that Jonathan essentially met with his father privately, kind of talked him off the ledge and said, what are you doing? This guy has been nothing but an asset to you and your kingdom. You got to dial this back. Saul has this repentant moment where he realizes and he actually, he actually commits at the, to Jonathan that David will never be harmed. And so at that point, David was actually invited back into the presence of King Saul on a regular basis. He would go out to battle, he would defeat the Philistines, and he would come back. And yet Saul couldn't stick to his resolve. There was such a deep, deeply held fear, resentment towards David, he makes another attempt to spear him through while he's sitting in his own home. David flees. He's getting good at it at this point. David fled his home. Saul sends his servants to find him. He says, I know where he lives. He lives with my daughter. Go there and get him. They go to get David. Michael, Saul's daughter, warns David and says, you better get out of here, bud. She lets him out a window. He leaves. And Saul is furious with his family for protecting David. Saul rages at his daughter for aiding and abetting David. She responds by claiming that David had overpowered her. And chapter 20 basically is Saul has a, a feast. It's three-day feast. David tells Jonathan, there's no way I can show up to that feast. And, and Jonathan says, you're going to be expected. There's going to be a seat for you. And David says, I know. There's no way I can show up. Your dad is hell-bent on my death, my murder. And Jonathan is still on the fence about this. He still thinks that this can be salvaged, this can be reconciled. He says, okay, I understand. Let's see how my dad responds when you don't show up for the dinner. And so he doesn't show up for the, for the banquet the first night. Saul doesn't say anything. Then he doesn't show up for the second night. And Saul asks Jonathan, where is David? Jonathan says, oh, he had some family stuff he had to take care of. He's not coming to this festival. And Saul loses his mind. In fact, it says that Saul picked up a spear and attempted to spear his son through. Saul's anger, this is in chapter 20, verse 30. Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now then, send men and bring him to me, for he is doomed to die. Jonathan replied to his father, Saul, and said to him, Why? What has he done to you? 
Saul hurled his spear at him to strike and kill Jonathan. And then there's this byline. And so Jonathan knew that his father had decided to kill David. Oh. Oh no, he's very serious about this. So Jonathan and David meet up out in a field away from everyone. They make an agreement with each other to watch out for each other's families. And then David flees his homeland. David literally leaves the country as a political refugee because his life is under threat. It's a great story, huh? Think of the day after he's been anointed king, defeats Goliath, which then leads to them routing the Philistines. He's now best friends with the king's son. If you can imagine for a second, access that with your own with your own uh, mind, how certain, how confident. you in that position feel about the calling of God in your life. This is amazing. It's incredible. Everything is, is falling in place so much more rapidly than I even anticipated it would. Man, God is so faithful. I'm going to ask you to look back in your own life. I'm going to talk about a specific uh, issue, a situation surrounding the calling of God. I want you to look back. Do you remember a time when your calling was more certain, more obvious, and more exciting than you feel that it is now? More certain, meaning there was a time when you felt so much more confident. You knew exactly what God's plan was. It was so obvious. It should be obvious to everyone. More uh, exciting, you were, you were fully on board. Was there a time when you felt alive in the calling of God, anointed for a grand purpose? You knew that his purposes were not... Were not uh, small or insignificant. In fact, you were, you were so alive in that sense of purpose, no giant posed even a little threat. And from that place, you had this strong sense of like, bring it on. Between me and God, what can go wrong? And then you got beat down. And then you got beat down again. Bad. And in 
your state of confusion, it seemed that time marched on and left you behind. Left you out. And there are some of you here this morning who remember that sense of confident calling, but it is a faded memory. Things did not work out. That's a real deal. Spoiler alert. It's not going to work out for David for a while. In fact, it's going to get worse. Some interesting questions in this story. Why anoint him at the young age that he was as a teenager? if you don't have a plan to appoint him for a long time, years and years and years? Is that just to torment him? What was that for? So three, um, three observations. I want to move through this fairly quickly. The first one is, and these are pretty straightforward, but there will always be enemies of and obstacles to God's calling on your life. Always, regardless of what your calling is, there are going to be challenges to that calling. Not only challenges or obstacles that you face because we live in a broken world, but challenges and obstacles that you face because the enemy of your soul is hell-bent on your destruction. I remember the very first time I had a conversation with my dad about a sense of calling to uh, leadership, ministry leadership. This was like 20-some years ago. I don't know if you remember this. And he very gently, kindly said, well, if that's what you sense God is calling to, you should buckle up. wasn't being pessimistic. It wasn't a threat. It was an awareness that when God calls us to something, there is, there is a process that we inevitably go through that for many feels a whole lot like discouragement, that feels like oppression, that feels like getting lost in the wilderness. First Timothy, Paul is talking to his, his young protege, Timothy, and he says in, in, in chapter 4, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Do not neglect your gift. In, in, in 15, he says, be diligent in these matters. Later, he, later on, he says, fan the flame. In other words, he's anticipating, Timothy, if you step into your calling, into the thing that God's called you and exercising, your gifting, there are going to be people, even in your own circle, who say, nah, I don't think so. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, it's on you to keep that alive, to fan the flame. 
Don't neglect your gift. Stay on course. Jesus, in, in, the, in the, the, the upper room, uh, basically sermon slash prayer in John 15, 16, and 17, in John 15, 8, he says, remember, remember, when you experience opposition and people attack you, people hate you, you need to understand, it's because they hate me. You're going to face enemies and obstacles along the way. Number two, no enemy or obstacle can stand in the way of God's calling on your life. No one can. There does not exist a power in the universe of sufficient size and force to intercept against God's will and your will, your accomplishment of his purposes. There's no such thing. There's two, there's two passages in Acts where the Apostle Paul, uh, Acts 18 and Acts 20, Listen to his language. Acts 18, he says, The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. Go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. He says, Paul, you're going to experience persecution, but don't sweat it. I will protect you. You will not be harmed. Do the thing that I've called you to do. That's awesome. Chapter 20. This is Paul speaking. Now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me that bonds and afflictions await me. Two chapters later, I like the first one. That's my preference. But this is a man who understands that whether it's God's promise of security or God's promise of affliction, then nothing can stand in the way of me saying yes to him and walking in obedience to his great calling on my life. Paul goes on to say in Acts 20, he says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself but so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received. Paul is essentially saying safety and security is not my calling. My calling is much greater, much more valuable. The story of David and the intense persecution that he is a recipient of over many, many years is actually a reminder to those who would point the finger at someone else and say, that's why I'm not pursuing, fulfilling my calling. He's why, she's why. Who do you blame? I would say in, in, in my conversations over many years with those struggling to discover their calling, uh, the, most, the most common location of blame would be a previous spiritual leader, a pastor like myself. I tried to step out 
I tried to be obedient. I said yes. Didn't go well. In fact, I went really poorly. I got beat down. I got beat down bad. Yeah, that's a real thing. I would say second to that as a family member. Either historically, my parents, or currently, my spouse. If you knew the difficulty of that relationship, you would understand why that relationship has precluded me from being fully on board and committed to the calling of God in my life. As sons and daughters of the living God, there is no force in existence that has the power to rob you of God's best intentions for you. If you need some homework to do, go back and look at the cross. The cross was the enemy's best attempt to rob the son of everything. And it was God's plan to grant him everything. Number three, the enemies and obstacles are a critical part of God's calling on your life. It's just, it's not just that they're inevitable. It's not just that you have power over them. The enemies and obstacles are part of God's calling. They are part of the process. And I want to be really, I want to be really technical here on what I mean by that. Um, I have been personally uh, in Philippians 3 for a little while now. Um, in fact, our young adults group, we've been talking through this a little bit. God's calling on your life, defined most narrowly, is to know and enjoy Him. Full stop. God's calling on your life is to know and enjoy Him. And for the young David, whether it's fleeing in the wilderness or sitting on the throne, the opportunity is equally available in both situations to know and enjoy God. The mistake that we make is that we take the, the, the practicalities of our calling, whatever your vocation is. In my, in my case, it's being a pastor. That's the practicality of my calling. And I, and I, and I flip it. I don't know. For me, Aaron Weiser, being a pastor is the way that I will know and enjoy him, which is my highest calling. The specific activities, the duties of your life, being a spouse, being a parent, being single, being an employer, being an employee, being an entrepreneur, whatever it is, that is the pathway on which you will know and enjoy him. And the test always is whether or not you will, you will maintain that as your highest priority. When you're on the run, 
afraid, wounded. Remember, all of this is part of his plan for you. And all of this is the pathway upon which you will determine and then manifest to the world whether knowing God is worth it. And this gets to the real heartache for those who resonate with David's dire situation. Because things didn't work out practically the way that I thought they would, because there was enemies, because there was obstacles, because I got beat down and I got beat down bad, I lost touch with God. That's been the fallout in the confusion. Somehow, I deprioritized as the, as the singular imperative of my life to know and enjoy Him. And what I find oftentimes, and this has been true in my own life, what I find is that those who are languishing in their sense of calling are often languishing in their relationship with God. They're waiting on God to solve the practical mysteries so they can get back to that, that uh, intense conviction and certainty. If that's true of you, you were after a lesser calling, and then it fell apart. And when it fell apart, you stopped pursuing God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. David, in this passage, is now on a journey of discovering what matters most to him. And actually, we're going to get to this later in the summer, uh, but the Psalms is a documentation of that journey, of what was transpiring in David's heart through this process. Is this really worth it? Do I trust him? This journey is a journey that requires many other disappointments in order to reveal my true answer. Chris, you guys can come up. Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. This is actually in the context of him talking about his life calling. In fact, it's in the context of him talking about his great successes. And he says, to the degree that I achieved those successes, and yet simultaneously lost sight of knowing God, I wasted the opportunity, I wasted the years, I wasted my energy, because of that all along, was the only noble goal to know him. My invitation to you, if you feel, if you resonate with that, with that storyline of having had a time of, of certainty, of conviction, of enthusiasm that has since waned and, and, and now is replaced by, by a little bit feeling lost, a little bit uncertain. Is this, is this what the Christian, is this my life? 
my invitation to you is to not do it backwards. Don't try to solve the calling piece. Run to him. Double down on knowing God and prioritizing your relationship with him. Make it the highest calling of your life to know him until it becomes the highest joy of your life to know him. And when we're headed down that path, we are on the path of God's calling. God, you are so good, so kind, so patient, so faithful. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We each wander our own way. And yet you have taken upon yourself all of the shame, all of the guilt. specifically for those here this morning who uh, feel down on this topic, who feel despondent, maybe even who don't feel anything anymore because of the confusion that lasted for too long. Would you open their eyes to see your kind smile? Your loving hand reaching out to them. team I was going to suggest that we just keep doing that for like another hour everybody good with that <clears throat> as we leave here I just want to remind you um, to to seek the Lord's face to fix your eyes on him that he's the one uh, that we should be looking to instead of the obstacle he wants to use the obstacle for our good to find more of him I also want to remind you, just as Aaron takes his sabbatical and begins that time, uh, that you would, you would be in prayer for him and his family. Uh, I want to thank you for being here today. If you have trouble uh, finding food, trouble with um, just making, making it work, life in general, come talk with us. We have something we want to share with you. We don't officially end till 1230, uh, so if you want to stick around and help us tear down uh, the gym, make it, make it like it was before welcome to hang out with us. God bless you. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week.